I know it's my turn, but I just wanted to sit for a little bit. Thank you. Woo, it's gonna be a weepy one. Okay, okay, okay. Beloved, let's pray. God, after a week and weeks and months and years and centuries and millennia that your people have been through, our minds are racing. Our hearts are rattled. Our souls are weary. But God, today we said yes to coming here. We are here looking for answers maybe for wisdom, maybe for comfort. But we are all here looking for you. So help us find you in scripture, in conversation, in worship, in community. This we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay. Friends, for those of you who are just joining us, this fall we at First Pres are doing a sermon series on the questions that we ask each other. Questions we hope will not only help us get to know each other, but questions that will help us see each other more fully, more completely, more humanely. Guiding us on this journey is the very human Old Testament book of Exodus. So hear now God's word for you today as it comes to us and for us from the book of Exodus chapter 20. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything, anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and the fourth generation of those who reject me, but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not acquit anyone who misuses God's name. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. For six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work, you, your son or your daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock, or the alien resident in your towns. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, but rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and consecrated it. Honor your father and mother, so that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or male or female slave or ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. 
And so when all the people witnessed the thunder and lightning, the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, they were afraid and trembled and stood at a distance and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us or we will die. And Moses said to the people, do not be afraid, for God has come only to test you and to put the fear of him upon you so that you do not sin. Then the people stood at a distance while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Beloved, the word of the Lord. Exactly three years ago from this Wednesday, I stood at this very pulpit and preached my first sermon as your senior pastor. Now, none of you were sitting here, of course. The choir wasn't in the loft. The pulpit was surrounded by a wall of plexiglass, and my colleagues and I were all safely distanced apart. It was a very strange and a tender time. Now, even though I grew up in the Bay Area, I spent a decade and a half living in New York City. I worked my first jobs, got married and had two kids, started ministry, and basically learned how to be an adult in that city including learning how to make small talk. Now, despite its reputation for being a rude and standoffish city, I would say that New Yorker is the epicenter of small talk. Now, maybe it's because everyone is in such close quarters all the time, but being a New Yorker means being next to and thus conversing with complete strangers from every walk of life in a variety of situations. And yet nearly every conversation I had as a New Yorker included the following question. What do you do for a living? Which was super awesome for me. Because if you want to know the quickest way to make a conversation really awkward, (laughs) all you have to do is tell someone that you are a Presbyterian minister. A response that usually got me one of three reactions. Reaction one, you're a what? A pres-the-what? A pastor-what? Or a response to a pastor? That's like a priest, right? Which means you can take confessions, right? Ooh, can you take mine? (laughs) Or my personal favorite, reaction three. You're a pastor. Huh. I never met a pastor who was so young, so female. So, Asian. In the end, it doesn't matter if you are a priest or a professor or a police officer, if you're the CEO of your household or a small business or Fortune 500 company, if you're working overtime or part-time or not at all, my guess is that if you are an adult, you have either asked this question or been asked this question more times than you can count. Why? Because our answers to this question, what we do for a living, has become a huge part of our identities as people in general and as Americans in particular. Second only to sleep, 
the average American spends a majority of their life working. Nearly 75% of Americans say that their job is either very or at least somewhat important to their overall identity. 53% of those with postgraduate degrees say their job is central to their overall identity. Now just look at Silicon Valley. Now for some of you this example will feel a bit extreme, while for others of you it might feel a little bit too close to home. In her brilliant, timely, and provocative book, Work, Pray, Code, sociologist and professor and First Pres member Carolyn Chen tells the story of an individual, a Christian by the name of John Ashton. Originally from Georgia, John started coding at the age of 10 just for fun. Computers were his hobby, and anything he created, he looked at as just a quirky invention. That is, until one of those inventions, an, an app he made for his worship band at church, caught the attention and was bought by a startup in Silicon Valley. From there, it didn't take long for John's job to become more than just a nine to five. Carolyn writes, John channeled all of his devotion to work. Like religion, it demanded his faithfulness and sacrifice and in return, work gave John a clear purpose in life, one that was not so different from his faith. But the God of work was like the God of the Hebrews in Exodus, a jealous God who demanded exclusive worship. Just when we thought we had nothing in common with the Bible, right? Now, it doesn't help that this story is centered around a people who lived thousands of years and thousands of miles from where we are today. It doesn't help that this is a story about a people who are enslaved by a foreign power, a lesser God. And what can we as modern Americans possibly have in common with ancient Israelites? Well, you'd be surprised. Let's just look at the basics of this story. As I said, the Israelites were an enslaved people whose oppression was so great that it reaches the ears of the Almighty. Exodus 3. Indeed, I know their suffering, says the Lord, and I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a land, a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And that is exactly what God does for the Israelites, at least eventually. You see, after a lengthy and destructive confrontation with Pharaoh, God does lead God's people out of Egypt, out of slavery, and right into the desert. For days, the Israelites travel without water, and when they do find it, it's bitter. Then they run out of food and have no idea where to get more. If the years felt long in slavery, well, the days felt even longer in freedom. Exodus 16, and the Israelites said, if only we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, at least there we sat by the pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. God's people may have been slaves in Egypt, but at least there they knew what tomorrow would bring. 
At least there they knew how to work for their survival. At least there they knew what to do for a living. But in the wilderness, they were completely and utterly dependent on God. Yes, even with all, yet even with all their kvetching and complaining, God provides for them time and time again. God comes through for them. God ensures their lives. But not for the reasons or the ways that we might expect. No, God doesn't flex for the purposes of divine glory or come through just to shut the Israelites up. No, every single time, God takes care of the Israelites in a way that radically reorients their very existence, radically reorients the way they do life. Instead of the usual M.O. of hoarding, God shows them how to take only what they need for that day. Instead of working tirelessly around the clock, God shows them how to stop and rest Instead of hustling as if their very survival depends on what they produce, God shows them how to trust in God and one another. A hopeful reality we see in the form of ten simple commandments. Now put aside, if you can, for a moment, what you think you know about the ten commandments that they are some obvious list of do's and don'ts that keep us sinful humans from angering a jealous God. Because the real Ten Commandments are so much better. At their core, the Ten Commandments are not a legalistic mandate on right action, but a a liberating invitation on right living. Now, how does that work? Well, the first three commandments remind us of the grace we receive. Because of who God is and what God has done, it makes sense that we wouldn't worship any other God, not the God of wealth or power, nation or state, household or home, not even the God of security or work. None of those gods have saved or can save any of us. There is only one God worthy of our worship, only one God worthy of our lives. And then the last six commandments remind us of the grace we give. Because of who we are and who our neighbor is, it makes sense that we would honor our ancestors and one another by choosing life, fidelity, honesty, and humility over death, betrayal, deception, and greed. Because we are all recipients of God's grace, it makes sense that we would extend that same goodness to our fellow neighbor and child of God. But then there's that fourth commandment, sandwiched right between the lofty commandments about the grace we receive and the earthy commandments about the grace we give is a seemingly out-of-place commandment about remembering the Sabbath day and keeping it holy. Now note that God doesn't pull a Jesus here and say, quit your job and follow me. God doesn't provide a tight list of acceptable occupations for God's chosen people to pursue. God doesn't say anything here about wealth or power or even justice. All God says is remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. In other words, you can work as hard as you want for six days, but remember on the seventh day, you got to stop and rest. 
You can be as diligent and as industrious as you want, but remember, you are not what you produce. You can do everything in your power to secure yours and your family's future. But remember, the most important things in life you cannot control. You can be a priest or a police officer or a professor, the CEO of your household, a small business or a Fortune 500 company. You can work overtime or part-time or not at all, but remember what you do for a living is not the sum of your life. What you do for a living is not the source of your life. What you do for a living is not your reason for living. No, I am, says the Lord. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And it's true, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I didn't free you from the tyranny of one Pharaoh just so you could become subject to another. In the final chapter of her book, Carolyn calls out the danger of worshiping the God of work. She asks, what kind of society do we become when human fulfillment is centered in the workplace? What happens to our families, religions, communities, and civil society when work satisfies too many of our needs? Having finished her book in the pandemic, Carolyn closed by wondering how the world might reopen after a forced season of pause. She asked the question that was on all of our minds at the time, what are we going to do? But then she offers the following thought. She writes, the philosopher Alistair, Mc sorry, Alistair McIntyre writes that our actions and ethics emerge from our sense of belonging. I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question, of what story or stories do I find myself a part? Beloved, what story or stories do you find yourself a part? What story or stories do we find ourselves a part? Because from where I'm sitting, the answer is pretty clear. Ours is a story of grace. Grace received, grace given. Ours is a story about a mighty and a magnificent God who doesn't just free us from oppressive pharaohs and deliver us to perfect promised lands, but who patiently and lovingly shows us how to live in a real world as free and liberated peoples, as loving and selfless peoples, as Sabbath peoples, as peoples of peace and justice and joy. So maybe the question we should be asking each other isn't what do you do for a living, but rather what are you doing with your life? When all is said and done, it doesn't matter how much money we had in our bank accounts, how many titles we had on our resumes, even how many people knew our names, what, what will we say we did with our one wild and precious life? Will we have lived our lives according to the rules of a cruel pharaoh who measures life in bricks made and hours worked? Or will we have lived our lives according to the commandments of a gracious God who opens our lives up to worship and rest and love? 
Will we have lived our lives in such a way that with, with whatever grace we received, we turned around and made it into more grace and more grace and even more grace? Because if that's not living, then I don't know what is. And so today I want to close my sermon with a story about a member of our church that you have heard me talk about before, a member by the name of Tommy. Now, Tommy is very special to me because our journey with First Pres is quite similar. Both of us became a part of this com community just shy of three years ago. After worshiping with Fifth Avenue during the pandemic in New York, Tommy also made the move to come here and worship with us in Berkeley. Now, the thing is, Tommy lives in Montgomery, Alabama. To date, I have never actually met the man in person. But I know Tommy, and I know his beloved Rosemary quite well by now. I know that Tommy's full name is Thomas Martell Goggins, that he was born and raised in Montgomery, Alabama, that he listens to classical music and sometimes the Foo Fighters, and the last time he changed his mind was about moving forward on a motion to continue a capital murder trial on October 30th of this month. You see, what Tommy does for a living is that he is a criminal defense attorney. Tommy stands in courts of law and uses the hours of his life and the years of his education to advocate for those who by society's standards have broken the rules of the Ten Commandments. In his 43 years of working, he has represented over 2,000 clients for charges ranging from speeding and petty theft to murder and human trafficking. If you ask him, he will say that his greatest victory was a non-guilty verdict for a speeding ticket for a pizza delivery guy. <laughs> this past week, I asked Tommy how in the world he got into this line of work. And he couldn't say. All he knew was that at some point in time, he realized that all the open cases on his desk were criminal ones. And he was on the side of the criminals. Why, I asked, and he said, quote, I have never represented anyone who is not a child of God, period, full stop. Now, my guess is that if you were to ask Tommy what he does for a living, he would tell you he's a lawyer. But if you were asked to ask him what he is doing with his one wild and precious life, he would tell you an entirely different story. He would definitely tell you about Rosemary and his kids. He would absolutely tell you about First Pres Berkeley and how this place is his church home. But my hope is that he would tell you about how he stands with people whose backs are up against the wall, many of whom have no one on their side. My hope is that he would share with you that his best hope for his clients is the knowledge that someone, anyone in the world, gives a damn about them. My hope is that he would tell you about a, a young woman he represented for drug trafficking who got the maximum possible penalty in the worst possible jail 
and how one time he sat with her in the sorriest excuse for a prison library that had only three to four books, but one of them which happened to be the Bible. And my hope is that he would tell you about how he opened that book and how he read Romans 8 to that young woman and assured her that nothing could separate her from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. My hope is that he would tell you how years later he received a letter from that woman with a poem that she wrote in prison entitled One Sweet Day that talks about how she may be imprisoned in jail, but how Christ was setting her free. Friends, what we do for a living matters, but what we do with our lives is so much more important. From the God we worship to the God we love, that is the heart of our living. That is the source of our lives. So your homework this week is simple. With all that's going on in the world and in your lives, my guess is that like me, you don't need any more work. So your invitation then is this. Go and live. In your work, seek life. In your worship, seek life. In your rest, seek life. Because your life is indeed the greatest grace that God has given to you. And your life is the greatest grace you have to offer others. Amen.